0: Please remain standing, turn with me to Revelation, chapter 11. This will be our New Testament reading, verses 15 through 19. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet... And there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your saints, the prophets, and your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. Amen. Let's turn back to our sermon text now, which is Nahum, chapter 1. Nahum, chapter 1. So, um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, right there in the middle of the Minor Prophets, near the end of your Old Testament. wonder when the last time was that a preacher asked you to turn to the book of Nahum. an opportunity for us to explore this um, perhaps neglected portion of the word of God. Nahum chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Amen. You may be seated. We recently had out from the library a book with the alarming title, Cosmic Catastrophes, Seven Ways to Destroy a Planet Like Earth. Um, Chapters were things like asteroid hit or comet swarm collision Supernova explosion, swallowed by a black hole. That was a good one. Um, all these just colossal disasters that we read about and we think, whoa. You know, it's a combination of admiration and trepidation at the same time. I feel excited and I feel a little afraid. That would be really bad, but wow, that would be really cool. <laughs> you know, That sort of thing. So we've, we've had a, actually a lot of these kinds of conversations at our house Uh, Daddy, are there any volcanoes in Pennsylvania? Have you ever seen a tornado? Have you ever known somebody who was in a tsunami? There's this this fascination with natural disasters. Uh, And it's not just kids. I mean, when a a hurricane is bearing down on a major city, people watch their TV. It's absorbing. And I would argue that there is really something to all of this, this this fascination with disasters, catastrophes, because it touches on our deepest fears and our deepest longings. Both. What we dread and what we desire. We are built to anticipate with both fear and fascination, with reverence and awe. The supernatural inbreaking of God's almighty power to purge the world of everything that's wrong with it, to make all things new. We often think of salvation and judgment as, as these kind of opposite poles. We're saved from God's judgment for salvation. And to a degree, that's true, but that's a very incomplete account of what salvation is all about. The book of Nahum teaches us a different perspective, which is that the judgment of God, the judgment of God is actually part of God's salvation for his people, a complete salvation. Salvation. What we're going to see today is that a a more complete view of God, of who God is, is going to lead us to a more complete view of what God plans to do in the world. And that is going to lead us to a more complete hope for a more complete life of faith. So let's get into chapter one of this book with uh, these three headings in mind then. Verses 1 through 6 are going to lead us to a more complete view of God. Verses 7 through 11, a more complete view of God's plan. And verses 12 to 15, a more complete hope in God's promises. Now, let me give just a word of introduction to this book um, in its sort of historical context. It's no accident that Nahum comes right after Jonah and Micah. What was Jonah about? It was about Jonah's mission to Nineveh, right? To Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And then in in Micah, a little less obvious, but Jerusalem was being threatened by that same Assyrian Empire based out of Nineveh. And so now we come to verse one of Nahum and what is this book going to be about? It's an oracle concerning Nineveh, that same imperial capital, but now at the end of its run at the sort of top of the food chain of ancient Near Eastern power. So we're now uh, about a century after Jonah. We're several decades past Micah uh, in the middle of the 600s B.C. And now through Nahum, the Lord is teaching Israel to anticipate the final destruction, the complete end of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. The the judgment that was sort of temporarily suspended when the city of Nineveh repented under the preaching of Jonah is now about to fall in the end. After all, that, that repentance of Nineveh was short-lived, very short-lived, and so now the Lord is sending another prophet, um, not this time to Nineveh. He doesn't tell Nahum, go to Nineveh and preach to them. He's... Nahum is coming to Judah with a message about Nineveh. This is a message for Judah. And it's a message of reassurance that the Lord is not turning a blind eye to the very powerful evil that Nineveh embodies. Repentant Nineveh, God once did spare. But this time the outcome is going to be very different. And why is that? It is because of who God is is. This is very important for understanding this book. It's something O. Palmer Robertson emphasizes in his commentary that what is God, what God is going to do about Nineveh is rooted in who God is and the character of God. And that's where Nahum starts here. It's with a description of the character of God. And this description may surprise you a little bit because it's not the kind of description that we're most used to hearing and talking about in the church. Um, uh, Nahum doesn't start here where you or I would be inclined to start probably if somebody asked us, so tell me a little bit about what God is like, about some of the first things that you might say. See, this is why God has given us a complete Bible with, with many complementary descriptions of what God is like. Uh, and this is why God has included Nahum as part of that complete Bible so that we might have a more complete view of God. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Let's think about what some of these words mean jealousy might trip you up. Jealousy uh, for us um, humans often means sort of very petty selfishness, um, wanting what others have for ourselves, sort of warily kind of huddling around our little claims that we've staked out. You um, can act kind of like overgrown toddlers, think about that toddler attitude of everything's just mine, you can't have it, or I want it all. That's the jealousy as it comes about in our hearts. But that's not what God's jealousy is like. It's not what Nahum is talking about here. God's jealousy is an aspect of his justice. It's an aspect of his justice. And it has to do with God defending just the truth, maintaining reality, the reality about who he is in relationship to his creation. He's the creator. No one else is the creator. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. No one else is the sovereign ruler of the universe. And so when people try to set up in their hearts or in their lives other authorities to compete with him, other gods, other objects of devotion to take God's place, or when we even try to set ourselves up as little miniature gods over our own lives or over other people, God cannot stand idly by. It would be contrary to his character, to who he is. He cannot just abdicate his throne and say, okay, you creatures just take over. Um, Because if if God did that, all of creation would be in chaos. Because of who God is, he must and he will maintain the way things really are, reality. Reality of creature and creator. He will set the record straight. He will correct the distortion. And he will do so forcefully with authority in a manner that leaves no doubt. So that's the jealousy of God. We could think similarly about the word avenging. We typically think of revenge as a bad thing, trying to pay people back for personal offenses, get our pound of flesh And that is indeed wrong. Um, We as individuals are not authorized to seek revenge, to to take justice into our own hands. On the other hand, we're not wrong to feel that, that when evil is done, something really ought to be done about it. Evil needs to be punished. Wrongs need to be righted. Debts need to be paid. In fact, that's why God, for instance, created government. As, Romans 13 says, an avenger. As an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Carries out God's wrath. See, That's God's servant, God's minister. Um, and so, by doing that, government at its best, we're not talking about government at its worst, we're talking about government at its best, is giving expression to the character of God. That he is a God of justice who will not let evil go unpunished, who won't just sit idly by, People do all these terrible things and he won't just pretend it didn't happen. He won't gloss over it. He won't sweep it under the rug. No, he will do something about it. Why should we never avenge ourselves? It's not because we should just forget the bad things happened. It's not because nothing ought to be done in response. It's because we're trusting God to do it. Because vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God is an avenging and wrathful God who takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, you might think at this point that this picture of God's character feels to you somehow in conflict with other descriptions of God in other parts of the Bible. Uh, God is love, for instance. So how can God also be jealous, avenging, and wrathful? Well, verse 3 helps with this. It shows that what Nahum is saying here is not in conflict with those other attributes at all. It's complementary. The Lord, after all, is slow to anger, verse 3. He's not quick to rush to judgment. He's so very patient with sinners. He so often gives... People so many opportunities to repent. In fact, Jonah himself said um, when Nineveh repented, he said, Lord, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger. And that irritated Jonah in that case, actually. But that's another story we've already covered. But the important thing is that Jonah there was simply quoting a very classic expression of God's character that appears in many places in the Old Testament, beginning with Exodus 34. Famous uh, event where God passes by Moses in his glory. And you remember Moses being hidden in the cleft of the rock, seeing God's back as the Lord passes by. It's a wonderful passage. But anyway, what does God proclaim? The statement of his character. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, But, after all those statements of his grace and love and kindness towards sinners, he goes on to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty? See, it's all there. From the very beginning. The love and grace of God together with his justice and his wrath. Together, those descriptions create a more complete picture of God than if you take just one or the other of them. He's showing his unshakable determination, even then, to judge sin and evil wherever they are found. It's what he must do because of who he is. See, our view of God is greatly impoverished if we insist on only talking about his love and his grace, attributes that are comfortable to think about and and if we leave out what scripture says about his jealous avenging wrath yes god is slow to anger but he is also great in power and he will not simply tell the guilty that's okay don't worry about it that's not what god is like our view of god is incomplete if we refuse to take seriously to think about, let the sink in the whirlwind and the storm, to, to look at the clouds in the sky and and imagine them figuratively as, as the the dust of God's feet being shaken up off the heavens as he marches across them in this invincible majesty, as he rebukes the sea and makes it dry, as he withers the forests and shakes the hills and the earth. Heaves and the rocks are broken into pieces and his wrath is poured out like fire. These are images that the Bible gives us that we need to have sink deep into our hearts and our imagination so that we have a complete and not a half-baked view of who God really is. This is our God. This is the true God. This is reality. This is who God is, whether or not you or I or anyone else acknowledges him as such. And it is to this God that we are all accountable, whether we want to be or not. Who can stand? Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. See, the church is impoverished today by an incomplete, one-sided view of God. And the world is in chaos today. Our nation and our culture are in deadly spiritual peril because people have closed their ears and shut their eyes and just buried their heads in the sand to this vision of what God is really like, their creator, in all his awesome majesty and holiness. And to the extent that people think of him at all, people would much rather picture God as somebody who simply approves of exactly what it is that we already happen to desire. That is no God at all. It's just a counterfeit. It's just holding up a mirror and seeing our own faces. Not seeing God for who he really is. And see what the world needs today. What the church needs today. And this is important. What you need. What your family needs. What your children need. Is a more complete view of God in all of his glory and his majesty and his holiness and his justice. Because without those aspects of his character, you will never begin to understand truly what his love and his grace and his mercy are really all about. Those things lose their meaning if you consider them all by themselves and refuse to think about these other descriptions of God. Okay, now that we have at least begun to get this more complete view of God. We can move on now to try to get a more complete view of God's plan. What is God planning to do? And his plan, it's repeated twice here, is to make a complete end of Nineveh. He will pursue his enemies into darkness, verse 8. Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away, verse 12. They've tried to plot against the Lord, verse 9, but all those plans are going to come crashing down in the face of Reality in the face of who God really is, what He really plans to do. It reminds me of Psalm two. Um, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord? And in response, He who sits in the heavens is just going to laugh and hold them in derision because He is still on His throne. But here's here's what I don't want you to miss. Here, this judgment against Assyria doesn't have just two characters on the stage. It's not just the creator God versus this one rebellious human empire. Starting in verse 7, there are actually three characters in this section. There's the Lord, there's Nineveh, and Israel, or Judah in this case. Why is God going to make a complete end of Assyria? Well, it's not just a matter of crime and punishment that's between them and the Lord. God is going to act this way towards Assyria because of on the basis of his relationship with Israel. It's because of his covenantal commitment to his people. That's why. That's why he's going to act this way towards Assyria. God, the creator and judge of the world, is going to bring all his cosmic power to bear against this vast imperial power, Nineveh. Why? He's going to do it for the sake of this one little nation Israel, that he's chosen out of the nations to set his love on, to to bring them salvation and blessing by grace. That's why the Lord is going to move in this vast way against this mighty empire. Verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But, so the, the way he treats Assyria is in contrast to the way he treats those who are trusting in him. And furthermore, We could go another step and say that God's judgment on Assyria is, in fact, one of the ways that he's going to give salvation to Israel. The fall of Nineveh is going to represent the end of the Assyrian threat against God's people. See, there was a time where Assyria was God's instrument, God's tool. The sword that God was wielding against Israel in covenant judgment. But now he says, though I have afflicted you in the past, I will afflict you no more, and now I will break his yoke from off you. Verse 13. I will burst your bonds apart. The judgment of Assyria means salvation for Israel. We need this more complete view of God's plan. To know that God is planning to save us not just from the coming judgment, but, in fact, through the coming judgment. that The coming judgment is part of God's plan to rescue us from evil. Uh, That disaster, that catastrophe, that's something that should send that shudder through us, like we were talking about earlier, like uh, tsunamis and asteroids, supernovas, that thrill of fear, yes, but also that thrill of Wonder, of fascination, of anticipation, as we look forward in hope to that supernatural inbreaking of God's almighty power to purge the world of everything that's wrong with it. And that brings us, finally, to the last two verses a more complete hope in God's promises. Notice the vast contrast between verses 14 and 15. Uh, Sorry, between verse 14 and verse 15. The one, verse 14, is addressed to Nineveh. Verse 15 is addressed to Judah. And to Nineveh, the news is all bad. Of course, no more shall your name be perpetuated. I will cut off your idols. I will make your grave, for you are vile. These are very strong words, not a glimmer of hope in them for Nineveh. But remember, who's the audience of this book? It's an oracle about Nineveh, but who's really the target audience? The target audience is Judah. And you see here, what's bad news for Nineveh, as it turns out, is in fact good news for Judah. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace like a runner coming to deliver the news about the fall of Nineveh to Judah. Destruction for Nineveh means peace, For the people of God, peace through victory, peace through the victory of Israel's God over Israel's enemies. See, this is what I mean by a more complete hope. Your hope as a Christian is not merely for God to take you, is not at all really, for God to take you out of this world into a different one where you can have everlasting personal happiness, period. Our hope is so much better than that. It's that God is going to cleanse away the evil that has come into the world through sin. He's going to eradicate the disease. He's going to cut out the cancer. He's going to crush the head of the serpent just like He promised at the very beginning. We must not think of judgment and salvation as these two opposite poles where you want God to do only the one and not the other. No, salvation is only meaningful if it is goes along with and comes about partly through the judgment of God. see, the message of Nahum, lest you think that this is just an Old Testament thing. Oh, but pastor, this is the Old Testament. These are these minor prophets. They're all about doom and gloom and judgment and wrath. This message, it's the message that comes to full maturity, full bloom in Revelation. That passage we read earlier the very end the consummation of all things the end of god's plan his new testament plan which is the same as the old testament plan just further along when he, when the saints in heaven are singing the nations raged but your wrath came the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your saints the prophets your servants the prophets and saints and those who fear your name both small and great and here's the phrase that i love for destroying the destroyers of the earth that is good news for the people of God. God is going to destroy the destroyers. Now that I've gotten you all excited about this, and I hope you are, I have a burning question for you, though. There's a problem, right? We have to ask why should that be? Bad news for so much of the world. Why should that be good news for me? Because when I actually look honestly at my life, my thoughts, my words, my actions, what I deserve is, oh no, that's actually what I deserve. I deserve to fall under that hammer of wrath myself. That whirlwind and storm, that fire and overflowing flood. I deserve that every bit as much as the next person and more because of my own sin, because of my own rebellion, because of my own selfishness and arrogance. Why should it be any different for me? Why should we escape this coming flood of the wrath of God, not just on Nineveh, but on all the nations, including our own nation? It's coming. So why should we get to stand on this side of that great divide and not on the side of Nineveh? I'll tell you, I hope that you know the answer. The only possible answer to that question is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because that flood of wrath that we do indeed deserve fell on him instead. On the cross. Because it was fully satisfied by his sacrifice in our place. That is the only reason that any of us can hope to escape the coming wrath and to feel this judgment to come to be good news instead of just utter disaster. And I have to warn you, I have to warn you that for those who don't know Christ, for those who are not turning from their sin, who are not taking refuge in Him, that coming day of judgment, and it is it is coming, history is not going to end with a supernova or heat death of the cosmos. It's going to end with the return in majesty of the risen Christ as judge. And for all who have not taken refuge in Him and. Laid hold of his promises of salvation. that he's holding out freely as a gift. For those who turn it away, that's going to be a day of utter and everlasting ruin, body and soul. we have got to take that seriously. But there's also the hope that for those who do belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That same day, those same realities, that's going to be good news, bringing peace and rest for the people of God. And we can see that all the more because the book of Nahum is in our Bibles. Don't impoverish yourself or the people that you care about with an incomplete view of God. It's uncomfortable to our our kind of timid wish for everything to be nice and safe, It's unfamiliar, perhaps, to a kind of Christianity where everything always is very upbeat and cheerful all the time. It's, uh, frankly, unconscionable, intolerable to our culture that insists on celebrating things that God condemns and just accepting every whim of our fallen sinful natures. Listen, this is reality. This is the way things really are. Don't you want a complete Christianity? Don't you want the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? That's what we get from the complete Bible, Nahum and all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you have told us about yourself and not just the easy or pleasant parts, but the hard ones too. Lord, help us to take this message to heart, to get a more complete view of who you really are from your complete word. And Lord, we thank you you've taught us in a complete way, not just through word, but also through things we can see and taste and touch as you're about to give us in the Lord's Supper. So help us now as we approach your table. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.